Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Thank you for joining us on this program. Hello, Monsignor. How are you doing today? Hi there, Marcus. Good to do, doing wonderful. 70 degrees outside up here. It is? Yeah. I was going to ask you if you saw snow yet up there. Oh, we've had snow too, but you know, this is typical for Minnesota now <laughs> in the autumn. <laughs> we, we had snow this past weekend here in Ohio. Yeah. I was really surprised. Uh, but it's good to, to join you in the warmth of our studios. Um, and those of you that are joining us, thank you. We're going to continue in our study of, of Irenaeus. And I just have to make another comment. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. I'm being challenged um, by looking into this text, which forces us to take it slowly. And whenever you read, especially an, an older book like this, that for many modern readers would seem outdated, and how does it apply to me today? And so you quickly read through it, looking for this and that. Well, Monsignor and I are forced to look at it because we want to we want to make sure we we cover an important subject without jumping over anything, and then we're we're going slower than I think we anticipated because we're finding yeah, it. yeah. Very interesting yeah. things. Uh, but I found it, uh, as I reflect on it, I, it's been such a blessing to my prayer life. Um, and it's in these crazy times, reading him has settled me down. I'm becoming more and more convinced that Irenaeus was a bit prophetic, too. You know, that like the Old Testament prophets, it isn't merely whether they, by grace were able to predict something they were in the position of warning the leaders to uh to come back to god or to not go into mm -hmm. a certain way i think about um ezekiel warning the shepherds meaning the leaders or ezekiel talking about being a, a watchman uh, you, you've got a job as a watchman. If you tell them and they don't follow, well, you did your job. If you don't tell them and you knew, you're guilty. Well, so he's, he's warning. And I, I see some of that in Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. At his time in the early church, you know, not even 200 years into the church yet, really 150 years or so after the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, taking what the Lord deposited to his is apostles, that apostolic deposit, and then in the midst of the battle of counterfeit gospels, he's not only defending the teaching of the church, but he's extending a warning to the future leadership. Don't do this. Stay faithful. Yeah. And he's going to hit some things that we're going to look at today that I think are very important, very important for even as you said, Monsignor, the, the goofiness that we're going through here. Uh, yeah. So, but we're going to pick up on page three twenty nine. 
Book 4, Chapter 9, Section 1. And there's a whole bunch in, in, uh, in Chapter 9 that we're going to look at. But, Monsignor, I'm going to draw our attention to really the first paragraph. We'll start there, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, actually, I'm going to start out by just reflecting on the very first sentence. Okay. In which he says, Of one, therefore, and the same kind of subsistence are all things, i.e., from one and the same God, as the Lord also saith to his disciples, therefore every scribe which is instructed into the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth out of his treasure things new and old. Now, I wanted to pause there before we got into what where he's really taken us, this issue of this the, the one substance of the old and the new. But I wanted to pause there because what jumped out at me was something that maybe it's because of my scientific background that I'm hearing him also emphasize. Of one, therefore, in the same kind of subsistence are all things. In other words, from one and the same God. Well, what we find in science are sometimes people who want to describe what they encounter in the research of the world, in archaeology, um, in biology, um, studying plants and animals and fossils, uh, and when they see similarities between species or uh, within species as they change, they, they see the similarity as evidence of, of um, natural selection or of evolution that happened through mutation over a long mm -hmm. period of time but the, the fact that you see similarities between apes and human beings or you see similarities in genetics between human beings and sea otters, whatever it is, then their argument is that's proof of one long process. And when Irenaeus says, no, it's proof of one creator. The same fingerprints are there on humanity or on apes or on otters or on the... It's one creator. And so that's what he says. That's what we're seeing. One and the same God. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And, you know, the, I, we talked about this um, a couple of sessions back, but I, maybe it's worth pointing out again. Um, um, when Irenaeus uses subsistence yep. here. Um, in 150 years, this, at the Council of Nicaea, this would not be the right way to use that word. Um, <laughs> what what, what um, he would mean is um, the same kind of nature, created nature. Subsistence is 
speaking of something that is that you know is essentially its identity is enclosed one you know so god is one substance and three persons well the the original the greek language was was hypostasis or subsistence um so that's I was when I I was really struck by this because um, you know the fathers at the Council of Nicaea struggled to get the language right. Yeah. There was so much conflict about this, and um, and here's a great example of of why because um, if Athanasius would have been here now, he would say, Irenaeus, I love you, brother. <laughs> I love you, brother. You're a you're a great man of God, but you can't use that word subsistence here. Yeah. You've got to use. I understand what you're saying. You're talking about one created nature, but yeah. subsistence is a very special word. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't mean to be tedious about it. It it just fascinates me how well, the church had to learn that. You make a good point because if you go back earlier to Irenaeus, he warns against. Get, becoming divided over words. Yeah. And that's is exactly, that's what I'm saying. He was prophetic. Yeah. He was warning, yeah. don't get divided over words, guys. And that's exactly what happened. That's, that's exactly. Right. I mean, there, yeah. men were yeah. burned at the stake because they couldn't agree over words. Lord, help yeah. us, forgive us as a church. We did that. Yeah. We did that. And, you know, and then, like you're saying, this the issue of the use of homoousius hasn't risen yet in the church, hasn't become the battleground yet. Or if it had, Irenaeus would have been more, would have been more careful. Oh, no, no doubt about it. Be, yeah. Because it wouldn't have helped his argument against the Gnostic if he was using a word wrongly up that within the church. He would have been, yeah. he would have yeah. been careful. And, you know, in his time, those two words, um, uh, subsistence and essence, were often treated as synonyms. Yep. Um, but in 150 years, if you tried to make that argument, um, you'd be out the door. You find, <laughs> you find in the, some of the early church fathers where they'll refer to the Eucharist as sign. And it was later that we had to back off and say, well, we don't mean that it's merely a symbol because that right. became the battle later. Right. But early, right. They, that's not what they were meaning. There's no, there's no nothing. It's that it points to. Yeah. It doesn't take away from the fact that it is. Exactly. A yeah. Very good point. But later it became the battle. Yeah. But the context here, uh, so I just, mine was a digression over to point out this, uh, you know, that when we, the reason we, in science, that we believe that we could go out and study because we believe that there was an answer to something is because we believe mm -hmm. that in science, in creation, is a, the fingerprints of a creator. That's what motivated the scientists in the 13th, 14th to 15th century and on to believe they could go out because what we would find was under the same cre everything's got a plan behind a one creator it's all of everything is 
through the same creative mind. All right, but that isn't really what he's referring to in this context. He's going on to to re, to use this idea to refer to the Old and New Testament because he goes on that he taught not of one bringing forth old things and another new, but one and the same, one and the same, period. For the mm-hmm. householder is the Lord who rules over the whole house of his father, who to the slaves indeed and those who are yet undisciplined delivers the law which is suited to them, but to the free and to those justified by faith giving apt precepts and to the sons revealing their proper inheritance. Um, if I go down a little bit, Again, by the new and old things which are brought out of the treasure, he means unquestionably the two testaments, whereof the old which had existed before is characterized by the giving of the law, and the new by the manner of life which becometh the gospel. And then to jump down a little bit farther, both testaments, however, are the revelation of one in the same householder, the Word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then to bring it all together in section two, he says, For men, for more, saith he, than the temple is here. Now more or less are terms used not of those things which have nothing in common with each other and which are of a contrary nature in a mutual discord, but of such as are of the same mode of subsistence, there's that word again, and, yeah, partake, uh-huh. and partake of one another, but differ only in number and in greatness, as water from water and light from light and grace from grace, true God, true God begotten, not made one in being with the Father. Oops, sorry, I got off into the creed. Yeah. <laughs> he says, in light from light and grace from grace, thus the gift is greater of that law which is bestowed on us for liberty than of that which is given for certitude. Monsignor, what is the battle he's fighting behind this long section? Why did he? Why was Irenaeus so intent on making this point here on this page? Well, I, you know the the Marcionites were, um, of course, they they wanted to reject everything of the Old Testament, and they apparently were um, pretty effective at misquoting Jesus. Um, you know, and Paul in terms of, you know, setting aside, setting the old and new um, over against each other. And Irenaeus's point is um, one God, it's one God. Yeah. And this is from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's all part of his one economy. Um, yeah. And what, you know, as we go further into this, I was so moved by this when I was reading it, how um, what changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Well, he he alludes to it here at the top of the page is um, we are moving from law to liberty. And and, um, because of Jesus Christ, now it is possible for men and women to become children of God and friends of God. And, and it's just, a, it's a beautiful picture of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. You know, it's a family picture. Yeah. And salvation history did not begin at the assumption of Jesus. Right. 
right. it's one and the same author. Yeah. And it's, it's one, he uses that word, the same mode of subsistence. Mm-hmm. And he makes a big point here that when you talk about, if you're saying more or less are used of something that's saying, well, they, they're the same substance, just a matter of more or less. So the Old Testament and New, it's a matter of more and less, but of the same substance, the same message. And to me, that emphasizes why, for example, that if you read First Clement, which is, you know, an awesome, some people think that First Clement was written by Clement when he was Pope. There are others that make strong arguments that, that he wrote it when he was a priest in Rome earlier on. And I just read a book recently on that, and I think they make a great argument that he was writing it as a priest in Rome uh, before the fall of Jerusalem. And it's very interesting. But the point is that when you read that, and that makes it even more argument, when you read First Clement and you ask, okay, what scriptures did he quote? It's, you have a hard time in First Clement finding him quoting word for word any New Testament. Yeah, that's right. But he quotes the Old Testament as much as Irenaeus does, but only the Old. And the difference between First Clement and against heresies, we've gone probably 75 years, now we've gotten to the point where Irenaeus recognizes the New Testament as one and the same substance as the old. Both mm -hmm. scripture, both authoritative, but different in that one was the laws given to slaves, and one are, as he says, a manner of life which becometh the gospel. Yeah. That's what we've been given. Yeah. So it's... As you know, what we'll be meeting up with down the way here in book four is he keeps up making this point that because we've been given this greater grace, the expectations on us are much higher than they would have been on the people of the Old Testament. Um, you know, once we're members of the family, we we live, we are given a higher standard yeah, well, we're going to hit that. Yeah. Do we hit that next? Yeah. Oh, anyway, okay. Yeah. So much good stuff here. Oh, um, my gosh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Marcus, uh, at the bottom of page uh, 332, when you you quoted the word, the same mode of subsistence. Yes. Um, just, again, not to be tiresome here, but I actually went and looked it up uh, in the library, um, and the Greek... There's a Greek fragment of this passage, and Irenaeus really? actually uses the word homoousios. <laughs> there. So I just, I was just, I, you know, I, I wasted my early life, not wasted it, but I spent four years <laughs> doing this stuff as a graduate student. So I'm, I'm mesmerized by it. <laughs> well, you know, but, you know, I was going to say it's too bad we don't, like with Vatican II, we have a multi-volume set of the discussions of the committees mm -hmm. behind the council. Yeah. So like you and I have talked about, well, yeah. what did, what did the, the fathers of the Second Vatican Council mean by the phrase subsists in? Well, you can go look in those multi-volumes, you can see what the committees were talking about and why they were 
arguing over the word est versus subsist in, you know, the, we, we know that it's too bad we don't have that for, for, for Ephesus, you know, in their committees where they're uh. saying, uh, homoousius, Irenaeus used it this way. You know, is that part of the, their discussion? Marcus, you know, I, I love to do it. When I was teaching, um, I would have the class, um, we would read a chapter in Dorothy Sarah's play, um, Constantine. On, and it, it is exactly as you ask here. It's the background discussions at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> oh, it was so much fun to, you know, everybody, the guys would play their parts uh, right you know, to the max. I've never read that. I've got to read that. That sounds yeah. fascinating. Oh, Dorothy Sarah's is well. She's great. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. She's great. She's great. Uh, yeah, I'm a big Peter Whimsy fan. Um, okay, if we go to section three mm -hmm. of chapter nine, we're jumping over a bunch of stuff. Apologize, but those of you read it all, it's good stuff in there. Okay, we're in chapter 11, though. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, actually, we're still chapter 9. I'm sorry. On chapter 9. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry. I had it written down. Uh, no here. problem. Okay. Uh, yeah. but, but if we, again, the reason I say I want to encourage you all to, to note, if you look on the side, if, you, if you've got our text from um, Akebel, mm -hmm. he makes a note on the side there on page 331 of all the scriptures that Irenaeus is using and quoting from for his arguments. I mean, it's just a point that for Irenaeus, the New Testament scriptures were authoritative in his battle against the false gospels. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's, we take it for granted today. I mean, how many non-Catholic Christians I bump into and say, yeah, the Bible's a foundation, and they have no clue you know, the development of the New Testament and at what point it became authoritative and then when it was finally determined which of the books are going to be in this New Testament or not. But I want to draw attention to section three. So, Monsignor, like usual, I'm going to give it a okay. read and then I'm going to pa pass it to you for your reflection. Okay, so we're at uh, section three at the beginning, the bottom of 331. And, he's, okay. and he says, for yeah. in that the New Testament was known and announced by the prophets, he also, he also was announced, who was to order the same according to the decree of the Father, being manifested unto men as God willed, that believing in him they might make continual progress, and that the perfect work of salvation, which might come to its maturity by the testaments. For there is one salvation and one God, but the precepts which form man are many, and the steps not few which lead man unto God. While to an earthly and a temporal king being but a man, it is permitted to bestow from time to time more and more preferment on his subjects, shall not God have the same permission being the same and always willing to grant unto mankind more grace, and with additional gifts, continually to honor those who please him. Yeah, and I, 
I, I guess it's a beautiful passage. And um, Irenaeus is, is effectively saying, I think, um, that uh, the Old Testament leads us step by step to Jesus Christ um, and the, the wonderful gift that Christ gives to us of fellowship with God um, and and salvation. But it's 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 a step-by-step process. Um, and so all of those experiences, all those dimensions of the Old Testament are, are essential in, in bringing us, you know, step-by-step. That's it, how I read it. Yeah, yeah, if you think of salvation history from the perspective of a father bringing up a son, what you see is that on the one level, there is a basic underlying teaching about what's right and wrong. And you, you want to begin that with your son, daughter, as early mm-hmm. as possible, in which you want to help them see, you need to understand, child, you're in this world because you came through me. You're here because of your mother and your father. Uh, there's rights and wrongs. You were to listen to us, not the parent down the street. Excuse me. You're mm-hmm. to honor us. This is your home. There are rules, and we love you. And if you disobey, there'll be punishment. If you recognize you're wrong and you come back and say, I'm sorry, I am always here for you. But even if you become the most scoundrelous person, I will always love you. That's the underlying message God gives to all of humanity that's ever existed from Adam to Revelation. But in salvation history, there are times when God has done a few more things. So if you imagine you did that to your child, you taught him and everything, and then he really, really went out and blew it. And you took him over your knee and you walloped him because he had been so bad. But then you say, okay, I forgive you. He says, I'm sorry. Okay, let's start over again. And I promise you, I will never, ever wallop you that way again. That's the Noahic covenant. That's the Noahic covenant. And then they grow, and that child becomes a teenager. And now all of a sudden, okay, we got some more rules here. We live on a farm. No, no, he says, and someday this farm will be yours. This land will be yours. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. And then as the child gets older, he's, he's saying, okay, now I'm going to have to teach you some rules here. This is how you operate the tractor, and this is how you don't do. And this is how you operate the chainsaw, and this is what you don't do. And as you start dating, this is the way you're going to act with those girls out there. There are some rules that you have to live in this house. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And then as he gets older and he starts to want a job, you give him a job in your company and you tell him, someday you're going to run this company. You're not even going to have this land, but you're going to follow in after me and you will be the leader in this company. That's the Davidic covenant. And then someday when he becomes mature and he leaves home, And now he's his own father and his own husband. 
Those rules that he was given as a teenager don't quite apply anymore. Now he has a whole new responsibility. He's been given freedom. That's the new covenant under Christ, a new manner of life. So that's the whole salvation history in the image of a father and a son. I'm just, my my mouth is hanging open. That was a spectacular excursus into covenant theology. <laughs> well, actually, Aaron As good as I've ever heard. Well, to me, I was trying to yeah. illustrate, the, as he uses the phrase, continual progress. Right. He talks about the continual progress. And... Um, not going into it with the same depth as you have, but um, but several places here along the way now, he's essentially referring to how we move from the status of being hired men and you know hired hands to being members of the family. Um, and as you pointed out, it it brings with it responsibilities and um, obligations. Um, a hired man can get get away with doing all the basic external stuff, but a son has to have a pure heart. And he talks about yeah. to grant mankind more grace. So as mankind matured, I guess, continual progress, to use his words. I don't know what that is in Greek, continual progress is kind of interesting. I wonder if that was one oh Greek my God. word. There is one word for it. Um, I wonder if it's one word. Yeah, I was wondering. If it was. I will. It'll come to me some point along the way here. <laughs> but we're given grace for that. Yeah. We're given grace for that. Now, the beauty of it is just because we've been given more grace doesn't mean it's guaranteed. We're still free. We've been empowered by grace, but we're still called to obey. That's what mm -hmm. our Lord said. That's what every New Testament epistle writer says. That's what the church says. It's still stand before God for what we do, it says in Revelations. Now, let's, if we go to the next section there, uh, Monsignor, right. where he continues, but if this is making progress to find out another father besides him who was declared from the beginning, and again, besides him who was thought to have been found in the second, to find out yet another, a third... It will belong to the same progress to go on from the third also into a fourth, and after this again to another and another. And thus the aforesaid view, um, fancying itself always in progress, will never stay itself in only one God, in one only God. For being driven from the existing one and turned backwards, he will be always indeed seeking God, but will never find him. Rather, he will float perpetually in the abyss of mysteriousness, except he be converted through penitence and return to the place from which he was cast out, confessing and believing one God, the Father and Creator, who was announced by the law and the prophets to whom Christ bore witness. Why did he write this, Monsignor? Um, well, of course, the Gnostics... We're saying, you know, we, we, we are on a search and we have to go back through the eons to find the one that was before the last one. <laughs> and here, Irenaeus's point, which is brilliantly made here, you'll never get there, pal. 
<laughs> You'll never get there. You'll be um, perpetually in the abyss of mysteriousness. I forget who, who it was. A, an old preacher I once talked about, you know, people that get caught up in, in psychology trying to dig down to find out the, the real self. He says it's a bit like, I think that he was using the idea of an artichoke. When you pull off the leaves and mm -hmm. you get down to the middle, there's nothing left. You know, the leaves that's are right. the artichoke. You know, and that's, that's kind of who we are. You know, we're, a, we're like an onion with all different layers and skins. You know, they're trying to dig through and find out this true God. And when they get to the end, they're going to reach an abyss. Marcus, do you remember, this is so long ago, um, but it was early in the pontificate of Pope St. John Paul II. He wrote something on this. And it was really, it was, it was, um, the context was he was trying to explain the difference between Buddhism and Christianity. And he basically makes, he made that same argument. I was really always struck by that. You no, know, I don't um, remember that. No, that's before my time. So. I don't suppose um, those books are <laughs> talked about much anymore, but it was a very powerful, um, his point was, you know, that the Catholic Church cannot, um, you certainly respect people of other religions, but Catholicism, Christianity and, and Buddhism are two totally different things. Well, he's going to actually, we won't get to it today, but he's going to get to the idea, and it's on page, let's see, where is that? Oh, he's going to get onto it, page 340. Uh -huh. He'll deal, he'll talk about the natural precepts of the law. Uh, which even before the giving of law were kept by such as were justified by faith. So in other words, this idea that God puts within our conscience mm -hmm. a knowledge of him. So in that sense, in Buddhism, people in other faiths, they're responding to what's in here. You know, that there's a, a being, but without revelation, they get off. And which is like keep, it's they just keep having to make that journey into the unending void. Yeah, just like um, he's talking about, with, yeah, which what yeah. the the Gnostics were were themselves getting caught up into. Um, let's uh, let's see if we can continue with the same discussion in chapter ten, section one, okay. the first paragraph, which deals a lot with what we're talking about. Um, if you go down halfway through, he says, For had ye believed Moses, saith he, ye would have believed me also. For he wrote of me, meaning that the Son of God is as seed scattered everywhere in his scriptures, at one time speaking with Abraham, at another with Noah, giving them his measures, at another time seeking out Adam, at another again bringing judgment upon the Sodomites, as also when he appears and guides Jacob in the way and speaks out of the bush with Moses. And we could go on there, but 
Here we have Irenaeus interpreting those places in the Old Testament where the, the main character in Scripture is communicating with God. He's saying that's Christ. That's Christ, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that is, I think, the heart. that's the heart of, of where Irenaeus is. Um, when he reads the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, it, it is Christ literally speaking through these um, prophets and, and the patriarchs. Yep, above, I should have started that paragraph where he yeah. says, Well, therefore, doth John also make mention of the Lord, saying to the Jews, Search the scriptures in which ye think ye have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And so that becomes the foundation to Irenaeus's assumption of that. I mean, to a certain extent, Monsignor, wouldn't you say that for Irenaeus, that becomes the key to recognizing what is authoritative, why the Old Testament remains authoritative? Because Christ was always present there. His voice was behind everything from the very right. beginning. And, and, um, and you know, he's, he makes, I think basically he's making the argument again that um, um, when Jesus uh, says, you know, to search, well, he quotes John here, search the scriptures, search the Old Testament. Um, how could anyone ever find Christ if he did not believe that those Old Testament scriptures um, came from the same Father yeah. of Jesus Christ. That would be like Jesus telling us to go and search in a field where you're going to only get confused and the real truth isn't there. To me, it, it, it bespeaks of somebody who's not really studied the Old Testament very well. If somebody says that, that God of the Old Testament, I don't like him because he's an angry God. Yeah. You know, he's not like the God of the New Testament. You know, and my in my message is, well, then you've not really studied the Old Testament because the the underlying theme of the Old Testament God is the Hebrew word Hesed. We just translated steadfast love. Steadfast love. Almost every other psalm, David talks about the steadfast love of God. And in the midst of all those, the reason we call it in our modern day tough love, if you will. You know, his steadfast yeah. love, his mercy. The New Testament word for that is mercy. Um, Marcus, isn't it isn't it impressive, moving how Irenaeus, you know, without having you know a very convenient Bible be from in front of him, his knowledge yeah. of the Old Testament is extraordinary. It, it, you know, he can he's pulling it from memory probably as he's writing this. Um, yeah, and it's just amazing. There are a few times in, in the letters of Paul when Paul will do something, he'll grab some quote, and you yeah. wonder, why did he grab that quote? I don't quite get the connection, you know. It's like, look, Irenaeus, they're always right on. Yeah. He's yeah. pulling a quote because it's, it's become a part of him, and his theology is built on it. And so it comes to his mind. He, he, I mean, again, think about it. He didn't have, probably didn't have a written concordance. No, no, he had no, no, none of the Bible study tools that we have, you know, 
he certainly didn't have a good Bible software program before him. <laughs> right. Oh, man. But I, Marcus, I just, you know, I was, as I read through this, I realize um, how much more effort I need to put into memorizing the scriptures. And, you know, it's the one, it's one of the things that I most appreciate about my evangelical free church upbringing. Uh, uh, scripture memorization was really emphasized. And when we were kids, we were uh, always, you know, challenged to to do that. And, you know, uh, young people from other faith traditions, they were hopelessly lost. They, I mean, because they didn't have that in, inducement yeah. to memorize scripture. Yeah. And... I can only be grateful and humbled by the encouragement I received years ago to study the scriptures every morning. Mm -hmm. When I had my awakening to Christ when I was in college at age 21, I had been brought up a Lutheran, but it was nominal at best. And then my life changed at age 21 under the leadership of a really fine congregationalist minister who graduated from Princeton, but he... He taught me uh, Ignatius of Loyola spirituality, and I had no idea what I was learning. Another how to discern God's will. I learned that early as yeah. evangelical. I didn't know it was Ignatius, but the point was he also got me reading the scripture. And and all I can say is my what I've been doing for 45 years almost every morning is I have um, a, a, a set of ribbons. I think I have five ribbons. And you start by putting one ribbon in Genesis 1, one ribbon in Psalm 1, one ribbon in Proverbs, one ribbon in Matthew 1, and one ribbon in Romans 1. And then every morning, you do, you do all five, and you just progress through. And I use a pencil to, you know, so I'll start through Genesis, and I'll read a chapter and put a pencil. And then I'll go through Psalm 1. I'll read Psalm 1 and 2, and then put a pencil at 3. And then um, uh, and then Proverbs 1. And so, in other words, you work through the historical books, you work through the Psalms, you work through the wisdom literature, you work through the Gospels, you work through the epistles. And then when you get done, you just start all over again. I've been doing it for 45 years. And, and the point is, I'm so great. That has helped me understand Scripture. I don't always have it memorized, but I kind of know where it's at. You know, I've always been impressed because you will, I know you put a lot of work into it because I'll get an email every, um, often from you in the morning about your readings. And I'm always super impressed because you've written them before 6 a.m. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm not. I mean, you've got the discipline of a monk, my friend. I, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of my, that's not the point, you know that. Yeah. My encouragement, just as you were saying, is get into the Bible. John the 23rd was saying that. John Paul II was saying that. Benedict was saying. Benedict, yeah. in, in one of his final writings on the Word of God, was emphasizing for Catholics, if you want to have a personal relationship with Jesus, he said, using those words, he said, study the Bible every day. You know, Pope Francis, carry a New Testament with you. Get to know the Bible. 
And maybe after doing it every day for 45, 50 years, we might know the scriptures as well as Irenaeus. Because he's overwhelming. Yeah, no, I, we have so much to learn there. Well, a few years ago, I was out in Portland, Oregon, visiting family, and I went to mass in a church that was primarily Filipino immigrants. And I was so deeply moved by these people carrying Bibles with them and using them at mass. It was, you don't see that in a regular parish. Yeah, um, I happened to be digging through some old cassettes and I found a cassette recording of a sermon I gave 35 years ago when I was invited to do the ecumenical Thanksgiving service in Newark, Ohio. And so, you know, but what was interesting was I was, we were doing the ecumenical service in my Presbyterian church where I was assistant pastor and I was assigned to do the homily or sermon that night. But what was interesting is that before I preached, when it was we read from the text that I used was Philippians 4. Mm-hmm. I have no anxiety about anything but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. That was the passage. And I've always, as you said, I've memorized that from years ago, and it's a part of me. But before I preached, I had the entire congregation read it with me. Oh, yes. Well, how can you do that unless they've got their Bibles? Yeah. Of course, in that case, I turn to the Pew Bible, page 728, whatever, and let's read it together. And we read it all together. I thought that was, it gets people rather than, it wakes them up at least. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah no. All right, Monsignor, maybe there we ought to pause because we might be putting okay. our people to sleep anyway. Um, so we'll pick up next week. And Monsignor, we're going to start at chapter 11 because you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Specifically, you wanted to emphasize how then did they desire both to hear and to see if they had not foreknown his future coming and how could they foreknow without being received, without first receiving that foreknowledge from himself. Right? We'll pick up there. That's it. Pick okay. up there next that week. That sounds wonderful. Would, would okay. you close us with a word of prayer, Monsignor? Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Most blessed Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. And um, as we read with St. Irenaeus here, help us to be more faithful in resorting to your word and to make it um, an intimate part of our lives. We thank you for this gift. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thanks everybody for joining us. And uh, I hope this program has been encouragement to you. Go to chnetwork.org to find out about our other resources. If you have any questions about what we're doing. Um, oh, Monsignor, I almost forgot. Yes. Didn't we got an email from somebody, remember, that, that was questioning oh. something? Yes, it was, um, okay. I have to go back and pull it up here if it's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, it, it was Ellen. Uh, her name was Ellen. And uh, it was very, she was very, very sharp on it. Um, okay, I'll be there in a sec here. The reason I wanted to do this, folks, is we really want to hear from you. If you've got any questions, 
we want to promise to answer your questions and, and bring them up in the program. And I almost forgot, but uh, let's make sure we get this in because it really was a nice question that she had brought up. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I don't have it on my on this email account here. Um, oh, okay, you're up at your cabin so, on your lake. Yeah. So, but I, it, her point was, um, she pointed out um, that the tense of the verb. Um, it was it was a sharp read on her point. I think she she caught that uh, Keeble's translation was maybe a little misleading there, not not horribly so. But um, well, then here's what we're going to do: like a good serial before a uh, TV serial program before the commercial, we're going to leave them in a, a cliffhanger. So, okay. we'll, Ellen, we will promise that the first thing we'll do in the next program is we'll have that email and we'll discuss uh, the very fine point that you made uh, in your own study of the book. So, And it's just wonderful when we get that kind of feedback. So I'm very grateful. To Thank it. you very yeah. much. So all of you, look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you. Bye.